Well, if you were listening to Pastor Calvin's prayer this morning and connecting any dots at all, as of tomorrow, Lynn and I are going to become empty nesters. After 34 years of marriage, 31 of which have been a whirlwind of children activities, we will find out if we actually still like each other or we even know each other. It's going to start tomorrow, Lynn. So maybe Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. So um, if you have any tips out there, those of you who are experienced in such things, because we're, we're now new at it all over again. And uh, so... Um, not that, you know, they're staring, the kids are staring at me now like, well, what, what, did we cause problems in your life? No, no, you're lovely, you're wonderful. You're great kids and uh, we're going to find a way to enjoy this time. Um. <laughs> They'll be back. Well, we might do, uh, we might board up their rooms or something like that. Yeah, so that's, um, um, uh, were any of you disturbed by anybody who was preaching out there on your way out this morning? Did anybody, no, there's, there's a guy maybe hanging around the church when you're leaving, and um, he might be um, particularly identifying the women of our church and suggesting that you're not dressed in a holy manner, so we'll see how that transpires. We, Nick Wagner, and we, we sent Nick Squared out to deal with them, but um, we're not sure how well that went. And the police arrived, and and uh, this fellow was um, working on the church across the road for a month or so until they got a restraining order on him. So now he's moved across the street. So we'll see how that goes. Um, just kind of letting you know that if you want to go, maybe you want to go out that door when you're leaving church because he's at that door. <clears throat> Be interesting if we all went out that door. You wonder where we went. Well, I, I'm starting tonight to uh, pick up a topic uh, that was um, mentioned back in our, um, our last discipling community time a few months ago um, with respect to the uh, security of our salvation. And um, I'm interested in, in a couple of sunny nights that I have with you in the summer. If there's some topic that you'd like me to teach on, I'm, I'm willing to do that. Um, but, but get that into me quickly. I have nothing planned for this coming Sunday night. And I don't slap these things together, by the way, on Sunday afternoon, so I won't be waiting for you. I'll be uh, picking something up on my own if I don't hear from you. But if I hear from somebody in the next day or so, I'll, uh, I'll consider what, uh, what is sent to me and we'll, we'll work on a couple of things and try to pick up a few topics that might be of interest to you. Uh, so tonight, though, I want to revisit... Um, what we call rootless, overcrowded Christianity and eternal salvation. And it comes out of, first of all, Matthew 13. You might want to be there uh, just to, to catch up or, or uh, review um, what kind of uh, caused us a little bit of, 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 of challenge as we were working through the parable of the sower. And um, one of the, you know, some of the work that we did with each other was to try and determine, you know, um, who's really saved in this text because... Um, there are four types of soils, and we had sort of some, some uneasy discussion about uh, what was going on, because we realized that in, uh, in two cases we knew for sure. The first one was for sure not saved, and the, the last one was for sure saved. 
but we weren't really certain about the two in the middle, or we were wondering about the two in the middle. If you'll remember by review in, in uh, uh, Matthew 13, verse uh, 20, for instance, um, the one who received the seed that fell on rocky places, a man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. So he quickly responds and he quickly falls away. And some of us weren't certain, did he really genuinely get saved or, or what happened there? And then in verse 22, the, the next type was the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. Now, I know some of you have uh, probably long ago wrestled with this text and you've decided exactly how you think it is and, and that's all, all well and good. I want to go a little bit further into the word of God than these texts th this, uh, this evening. So, so the, the big question that we want to address tonight is um, are the saved saved forever or is it possible to be lost again? Is it possible to go to bed saved and wake up the next morning unsaved? I think that's really the question that we're uh, really wanting to address. And of course, in these two cases, just by way of observation, they, the first one seems to gen have, have quickly bought into uh, the presentation of, of God's word and then quickly checked out. And the words, the operative words, or important words there were falls away. Um, and, and I think in the discussion that we, we embarked upon in the discipling communities, we realized that his, this person's hope was in blessings, but not in the blessed hope. And, uh, you know, he welcomed the truth of God with joy, but as soon as trouble came, which he or she wasn't banking on, they checked out. Um, they were really only in it, it would seem, because someone told them that if you come to know Christ, you will be happy all the day long. And uh, so they, they bought into that. But not necessarily, it would seem, the blessed hope of Christ himself. And then the second one acquired the seed, it seems to say here, but the worries and wealth choked out any fruit. And so the operative word in the first two was falls away. The operative word in this one was unfruitful. Uh, seemed to be distracted by the by uh, this good fortune of this world rather than investing in spiritual riches uh, because it says here that the deceitfulness of wealth seemed to steal this person away. And um, so there you have it. You have these two descriptions, falls away and unfruitful. And, and so I think rather than um, look there and speculate uh, about this, maybe we ought to really... Uh, dig a little deeper into uh, what salvation really is. Maybe the truth about salvation. It's always better to study the real thing rather than those who um, seem to handle the real thing in the wrong way. So let's look uh, tonight at John chapter 7. This will be our, our, John chapter 6, I should say. This will be our preferred text uh, um, among many other texts that we will cross-reference. But this is going to be our preferred text tonight on this discussion about the whole aspect of coming into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and whether or not that is a secure relationship. Um, in this text, in John chapter 6, verse 37 to 40, it, uh, it reads this way. And Jesus is speaking um, here about the bread of life, and he says this, all, and, and I want you to live and hang on every word and every nuance of this 
all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, quite frankly, I could close the book tonight, and I think we could go home. I mean, honestly. I don't find any ambiguity here. I don't really struggle to understand what this says. I don't find myself one, wanting to cross-reference and prove this to be wrong or anything like that, but you've paid me probably to teach you till at least seven, so I'm going to do that. But I, I think this is a really, I mean, this is a really um, um, uh, amazingly packed and confidence-laden text of Scripture. Some people believe that you are saved by an act of your own will. And um, some people here, I'm sure, were perhaps raised in, in evangelical traditions that would have taught that. And then by an act of your own will, you can also remove yourself from salvation. And um, I don't often do this, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to do this tonight with me because I think we need to maybe have a refresher on salvation or make sure that we ourselves here read what the scriptures say. So for instance, let's go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Let's, let's listen to uh, the word of God teach us about salvation. And primarily, I want you to ask the question, is salvation based on an act of my own will? Because I think that's really the question that we're, we're, we're looking at. In verse uh, 8, it says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, and justified means declared pardoned, declared righteous by God. God, as the ultimate judge, declares us pardoned and no longer guilty of our sins. That's what justified means. By his blood, by the blood of Christ, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, no act of the will to turn to God there, for if when we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And so we have this judicial decision that is uh, articulated for us in verse 9 and then we have this relational reality that is articulated for us in verse 10 that we have been brought into a new relationship of friendship with God I want you to turn for instance now to Ephesians chapter 2 Ephesians chapter 2 and I want to start uh, first of all in verse 1 as for you you were dead 
in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You were dead. Over in verse 8, 9, for it is by grace, the undeserved favor of God, that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This salvation is not from yourself. This salvation is not from yourself. It is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. You were dead. The grace of God, because of the great love of God, reached into your life. This salvation was not of yourself. It's a gift of God, so that no one can boast. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, just in case you're saying, well, that's what Paul said. But what about the disciples? Yet to all who received him, welcomed him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now listen, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Not of human decision. Not of your will. Say, so, well, you know, maybe it says in both of these cases, received him, believed in him. In the um, Ephesians text, it says by faith. So then I'm involved there somehow. Yes, you're involved there somehow. But listen to this in Philippians 1 verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. So how were we able to believe? It was granted to us because we were dead. It is impossible when you're spiritually dead to do anything in terms of being inclined towards spiritual life. It's an act of God in the old days, we used to call it quickens us. But the, the term is really regenerates. God causes there to be a change in our life, enabling us to go from death to life and respond to his grace in our life. Not by human decision, not by the will of a person, but by the grace of God. In Acts chapter 13, In verse 48, kind of a, a, an intriguing verse with reference to how salvation was now coming to the Gentiles. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Not because they came up with a bright idea to follow God, but rather because God pursued them, they were appointed to believe, and they did. And so we have this um, 
this journey throughout the descriptions, the theology of, of salvation, the theology of God's work in salvation, that from first to last points out that God is the one who initiates our salvation. And so the question we're really asking then about whether or not our salvation is to be preserved once we've received it is not so much to use the kind of some of the phrases that we've used like eternal security or perseverance of the saints, although those are okay. What we are really asking is about the keeping power of God. That's what we're really asking. We're really asking is, can God keep what he has already brought to himself? That's what Jesus is actually addressing in this John text. In fact, that's uh, what Paul addresses, really, as he introduces the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he defines what it is. Because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In other words, the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes. Those who were formerly dead are brought to life. The, the, the gospel, the good news, is not just the, 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 um, the context or the, uh, the consistency of the message, but rather the, the keeping power of God, the power of God. That's the good news. We're able to tell people, here's the good news. God is able to save you. And God is able to keep those who believe in him. And, and, uh, and that's the great news of the, God, of, of the message of salvation. In 2 Corinthians, Paul likens the salvation reality to creation itself. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and, um, and verse 6. Um, well, I'll start at verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Um, that's, quite honestly, that's why um, I, it drives me crazy when people are tampering with creation and the elements of creation and the reality of creation and turning it into a metaphor instead of a, 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 a literal reality because in fact uh, the gospel uh, the, the, the uh, obtaining of salvation is not dissimilar to the way God called the universe into existence now the things that weren't didn't suddenly create a will of their own and say oh God please create us and it's the same way in salvation. It was an act of God's create, creative ability and power that caused the darkness of your heart to welcome the lightness of his truth. That's the message that is given to us here in, the, in, in Paul's um, uh, writings to the Corinthians. Made his light shine in our darkened hearts like creation. It did not believe, cre creation did not believe itself into existence. It was an act of God 
who said, let light shine in the darkness. And Paul said that's the, precisely the same thing that he has done in your hearts. Your hearts were darkened, your hearts were dead, and God called your hearts, called light to shine in your hearts that you might believe. And so we have in this John 6 text, as we jump back now with some of these parallel texts that we've looked at, in John 6, 37, Jesus makes the point that God finishes what he starts. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That's, that's a declaration of what God starts, he finishes. Paul, um, the Apostle Paul, uh, phrases the very same thing in a, in a different way. Some people's favorite verse, Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's just another way of stating, restating John 6.37. God finishes what he starts. All by God's grace given will come, and whoever comes, I will never drive away. Now, you can't see it in your Bibles. I can't see it in mine, but there's a double negative there, which um, in, in, uh, uh, when you have this double negative in Greek, it's as if um, it is being stated, um, I will absolutely keep. I will, never not, I will never not cast them away or drive them away. In other words, I will absolutely keep them. Uh, you can't say it in a stronger way. It's not, it's not possible with human language for Jesus to have stated this in a stronger way. All that the Father gives to me, I will absolutely keep. That's what he's saying here. Jesus will never expel or reject, but will absolutely keep those the Father gives, and he will prevent anyone including the person themselves from taking them because it's the Father's will that's at stake here. You see how he embeds this in the Father's will? Uh, For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's the Father's will. So who is entitled to this kind of security? Who of us is entitled to this kind of security? I'll tell you who it is. All. That's the word here in verse 37, all that the Father has given me. If you have been given by the Father to Jesus Christ, then it's you. He will absolutely keep you. Now, the soils above in this parable, um, the one was hoping in their own, in their, uh, in their own idea of the kingdom. They were not trusting, relying on Christ. And the other was easily distracted by other things, not Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, those that came for the wrong reasons, who joined into the teachings of the truth with joy, but abandoned quickly, had the Father really given them to Jesus? 
And the others that um, appear to, for some time, be somewhat involved, but were distracted, completely distracted, and drawn away completely by the wealth of this world, were they really given by the Father to Jesus? That's the question that has to be asked. Salvation, at least we can, we can state this as we look at it, salvation is not based upon the strength to keep myself, but the power of God to keep what he has graciously determined belongs to him. That's what the Bible teaches. And Jesus has been commissioned by the Father to keep the safe. Follow along with this and just think about it. Jesus has been commissioned by the Father to keep the saved. For the saved person to be lost, it would mean that Jesus has failed in his commission. How many in here think that Jesus could fail at anything that he tries to do? Anybody? It's impossible for Jesus to fail. We would have to believe that he would fail at his commission. And we also learn in the scriptures, in, in, um, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 5, that those who are saved have been sealed by the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, have you ever put down a deposit on anything? What's the reason you put down a deposit? Huh? To keep it and to guarantee to the one that you are dealing with that I'm going to purchase this thing. I'm, in Jesus' case, I'm going to raise them up at the last day. And he has given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing, because in that context of that text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's about dying. And in the context of that, it says, don't worry about that. Don't, don't be fretting about that. The Holy Spirit has been given to you as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That Jesus has promised to raise you up in the last day, to raise you up. And in order for that to not happen, Jesus would have to lose the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would somehow, as the deposit, have to be lost. Because if you don't follow through with the deal you make on the deposit, you lose the deposit. And so we'd have to come to terms with the idea that somehow God the Father, God the Son, could lose the Holy Spirit for you to wake up someday and say, I don't have salvation. If you had salvation. Because that's always the operative statement. So could you deny Jesus momentarily and be kept? We can be interactive here tonight. Could you deny Jesus momentarily and be kept? Absolutely. Example, Peter. What's that? Peter. Could you wander into discreditable behavior and be kept? How many say yes? Because probably none of us would still be saved if we couldn't. But that's not the reason. We don't make this up as we go along. Hebrews 12. Doesn't it imply in Hebrews 12 that we probably mess up sometimes? What does it say in Hebrews 12? Well, let's get there. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 4. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. 
My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are, an Ill illegitimate children. You are illegitimate children, not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for, that, for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have, have been trained by it. Um, th here, uh, this is not just about sin, of course. This is about trouble that comes into your life or whatever comes into your life. We need to understand that God, like a, a, a tremendous father, is shaping our lives and allowing things to come into our lives in, in whatever way that is required as discipline to, to perf perfect us in the, the holiness of God. But that also includes the kind of sinfulness that comes into our lives. And if you can sin and not face the discipline of God, then maybe you're not his child. That's the point that, that the text here in Hebrews is making. And so, absolutely, you can wander into discreditable behavior and be kept. Could you lose your mind and be kept? How many say yes? My grandmother, godly, godly, godly woman, taught Sunday school almost as long as Methuselah. And got Alzheimer's in the last three years of her life. And my grandmother started to say things that I never could imagine coming out of my grandmother's mouth. Did I, for one second, think, oh, she's lost her salvation, that power of God can't keep her through Alzheimer's? Absolutely not. It's not based on our mind. It's based on the keeping power of God. All that the Father has given me, Jesus, has been commissioned to raise them up at the last day. I fully believe that she will be there. And so we have this confidence in 2 Timothy 1.12. All over the scriptures, there's confidence, 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 encouraging us, encouraging us not to lose confidence in our salvation, not to lose confidence in the, the keeping power of God. In Timothy 1.12, it says this, that is why I'm suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. The French in their translation, I promised Alain Jaguer I would, I would uh, bring some French into this evening. Uh, the beauty of God's language, Alain. But I might butcher it. But the French put this verse so well when they say, <laughs> Il y a la puissance de garder mon dépôt. How's that? Is that not bad? A little bit, you know, a little bit uh, anglicized. All right. Il a la puissance de garder mon dépôt. He has the power to keep my deposit. That's how the French translate this text. And then um, Paul writes to the Romans and he says, what would separate us? 
Verse 35, who can separate us from the love of God? Those who are in Christ Jesus. First of all, he says in verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also declared righteous. And those he declared righteous, he also glorified. And then he goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can sin separate us? Absolutely not. Can physical suffering separate us? Absolutely not. Can supernatural powers separate us? Absolutely not. Nothing present or future can separate us from the love of Christ, uh, love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because in Ephesians, it te teaches us that, um, in fact, Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Nothing present or future because God chose us before creation to be in him. It's a lifelong plan in Ephesians 10 10. For we are Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, to do good works prepared when? In advance, before we were even saved, for us to do. Can temptation separate us from our salvation? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says there that no temptation has seized you or me except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And so we have these amazing promises. Well, um, this is salvation. I've given you just a brief look at the eternal promises of salvation, the keeping power of God. But let me just review with you quickly uh, the markers of the saved. The markers of the saved. In John 15, we are um, continuing on in the teachings of, of Christ. In John chapter 15, verses 4 and 6, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Markers of the saved. The saved bear fruit. The saved bear fruit. And it says you will only bear fruit if you are attached to the vine or attached to Christ. So this fruitless person in the parable in Matthew leaves us very insecure. Because those who are attached to the vine bear fruit. In verse 6, it says, if you don't bear fruit, if anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. The implication here is that if you are not attached to Christ, then you won't produce fruit, and the, the outcome is not good. So the, the marker of the saved bears fruit. God's power and presence is evident in your life. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Godly behavior, resistant, uh, resistant nature to sin. Thou, those are the markers of those who truly belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 7, you may have been um, a little bit uneasy uh, about the text where it says that um, some of you, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, or others who have prophesied or uh, driven out demons or performed miracles. 
Sometimes many of us become unnerved by those texts, but listen to it. Here's what it says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Just because you call Jesus Lord, Lord, and then disobey him and do anything you want to, doesn't mean you actually belong to him. The marker of belonging to him is that you do the will of God, that your inclination of your transformed heart is to please and obey the Lord. That's what marks your salvation. And these others that uh, did not, we prophesy, did not we drive out demons, did not we perform miracles. Listen, outward signs have never been markers necessarily of a relationship with God. God has used donkeys. God uses demons. God uses Satan. God uses unbelievers to do his bidding all the time. The truth is, he says, away from me, you evildoers, at the same time as they were performing, allegedly performing miracles in the name of Jesus or driving out demons in the name of Jesus or some other action externally in the name of Jesus, putting on some sort of sideshow in the name of Jesus, and then in the other sectors of their life were evildoers, means that they didn't belong to Jesus in the first place. And he says, away from me, I, didn't even, I don't even know you. The second marker of the saved is doesn't love the world. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. says, love not the things of the world. If you are far more drawn and enthusiastic and excited about the things of the world than you are about the things of God, then you don't have the mark of salvation in your life. That, that's a... That's a, a, a new nature has come into you. If you're hitching your wagon to the temporal, uh, you are living as lost people. The uh, M.O. of the truly saved, those living forever, do the will of the Father. And then the third marker is doesn't leave. The saved bear fruit, the saved don't love the world, and the saved don't leave. 1 John 2.9. 2.19, sorry, listen, listen to this. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now again, in, in each of these cases, is it possible that there might be a momentary or a, a, a period of time in our lives where we might not be bearing fruit but truly related to God? Yes. Is there a period of time when we may be pulled away, tempted, do some things and, and, and uh, be drawn to the things of the world? Yes. Is there a possibility that we might have some sort of lapse in our life where we drag ourselves away from the people of God for a, a brief period of time? Yes. But each of these things put us in a position of insecurity about the genuineness of our faith in Christ. And what the scriptures teach us is, here's the confidence. You bear fruit, you don't love the world, and you don't leave the people of God. 
That's the security of those who truly are redeemed. That's the confidence that we can have. I've got a few more minutes, um, and I, I know that there's a thorny text that I think we need to deal with, because if we don't, you'll say, well, you stacked the deck tonight. Not a great metaphor in church, but we'll use it anyway. <laughs> and you only looked at the text that validated what you wanted to say. I know how you think. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. And I sure hope that I'm not... Um, so Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, and, and uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up with this. And I certainly hope I'm not introducing anything to anybody who didn't have a problem in the first place. Be like, I never saw that before. <laughs> now I'm very confused. Well, I'm going to do my best not to confuse you. Here it is. This is perhaps... There have been other texts that I've researched and people have... In, in literature that have, have, have jumped up and said, here, see, here's a text that should make you insecure. And none of the texts have ever worked for me except this one. But even this one, I'm pretty convinced we're going to be fine tonight. Listen, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now that text looks like, hmm, maybe it's possible to be in and fall away and never to be back again. I want you to notice in the context of this, first of all, the context of Hebrews as a whole we're going to look at, and then the context, because it's really helpful, and then the context of this text. Let's look at verse 7. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Now, the picture is very, very important because the context here is saying that the writer of Hebrews is, by this illustration, saying, I am talking to you about particular people who have been uh, given the great blessing of being in the context of the great things of God. Because he's talking about land that receives water. Same land, same place, same water, all that kind of stuff. Some produces, some does not produce. This is not so much describing how salvation happens as describing what you should be looking for when salvation does happen. Now, this is not really talking about whether God has the power to keep those who are saved. The book of Hebrews is a, an observation book in the sense that Hebrews challenges appearances. If you read the book of, here, of Hebrews, you will find out that, that appearances mean something. 
And appearances have dire consequences if those appearances are not consistent with the good moral behavior of the godly. So as you read through the book of Hebrews, you will see that constant theme coming through that this is what it looks like. I'm not saying exactly how it is because man can't tell what's in the heart. Only God knows what's in the heart. But the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is saying this is what it looks like. And if what it looks like is really true, then these are the consequences of what will happen to you. All right? This is not giving us a theology of salvation. This is giving us a description of appearances. And these appearances, if they are true, are expressing certain consequences. So we look at this, and then we see this, this kind of text, because we come to these, uh, each of us probably come with certain baggage tonight to say, well, I know someone who was saved, and they're not any saved any longer. I, I know someone like that. Each of us come with certain baggage, why we feel like we have known a saved person who has lost their salvation. And then we come to a text like this and say, see? But here's what this text simply says. It is impossible for those who have been, now by the way, each of these terms, enlightened, tasted, partakers, tasted, have multiple, if you, if you want to do the research yourself, you do it, you take a look at the original language, the original words, and you look at the multiple descriptions of these words, and the nuance, and the range with which these words can mean, and the writer here has not told us, he hasn't said, now enlightened, by enlightened I mean, by tasted, I mean. By partaking, I mean. He, he hasn't said that to us. And so we are left to say, well, in light of all of the theology of Scripture, because you can't come to a text ever and ignore all of the theology that you've been taught before. So you, you bring all of the weight of everything you know, and you say, what's happening here? And, and it, what it appears to be is, the description here are, are those who have grown up in the community of faith. Perhaps there is no text that is more appropriate to um, any of us who've grown up in church our whole life than this text. Because we have an incredible... I, I was born, the first Sunday I, possible, I was in the nursery in a Baptist church. That's been my whole life. And, and I thank God for that. But there's also a great danger in that. I mean, um, John, you gave a great testimony this morning, you know, about the realities of, you know, when we're small and we, we respond and then there's this whole journey of are, are we going to really own our faith or is it really our own or we, did, we, did we borrow it from our parents and all that kind of stuff. And this, this context here is, is people growing up in the community of God. That's who the, it's written to the Hebrews. People growing up in the community of God. They've been exposed to the truth. That's what it says here. Enlightened. They've been exposed to the truth. That's the way that word enlightened can be translated. They've tasted. They've experienced the blessings of God. Our little kids here in our church experience the blessings of God. People in your family, the children in your family, experience the blessings of God because you're in the family. 
That's why Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthians and he said, listen, to the, they were getting uh, saved and they were in homes whereby maybe the wife was saved and the husband wasn't. Husband was saved, wife wasn't. And Paul was saying, hey, don't, don't rush to divorce. Don't you realize, he says, the children are sanctified by the believing spouse? In other words, there's this umbrella of blessing that comes into the believer home. And so they experience the blessings. They, they have been exposed to the truth. And then it says partakers. It says here partakers of the... Um, uh, they've been, been enlightened, uh, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who've been partakers of the Holy Spirit, a close association with the Holy Spirit by those in the community. You sit beside them in a pew. You uh, are friends with them. You have some relationship. There's a close association because the Holy Spirit is involved in, in the lives of the people you're hanging out with. And then finally, you've tasted, it says here, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of... You've experienced the truth of God's Word. You've seen it with your own eyes. You've seen evidence of the work of God. You've heard the testimonies in the baptismal tank. You know that God is real and that God is at work. You know all of this. It is impossible for those who have been immersed in all of this, have seen it, acknowledge it, believe it's true. It says impossible if they fall away from all of that to be brought back to repentance. Because in other words, as a consequence, they are rejecting the Christ that they have already with their own lives experienced. Not in a salvation transforming way, but in an observer way. He's warning here. This is a warning. Because they are rejecting Christ. It says, um, um, because, they are, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. They're doing the same thing that took Jesus Christ to the cross. They can't be renewed again to repentance because there's no other place to go for repentance. If you reject Christ, if you walk away from all of this, if you've been immersed in all of this and you've seen it and you've seen with your own eyes what God can do and you walk away from it, you say you reject it, there's no other place to go for repentance. Christ is the only one who you can go to for repentance. And you have joined the mockers who disbelieved Christ even with all of the evidence that he put forth while he was here on earth and allowed him to go to the cross to be crucified. The only means of forgiveness. It's impossible. That's what it says. This is a warning. But I don't believe for one second this is some sort of description of a legitimate bona fide salvation uh, based on the fact that Jesus says, I'm going to keep everything. Uh, but when you read this and when you read the whole book of Hebrews, you realize that the book of Hebrews is about appearances. It's about appearances. And if the appearances are as they seem, then there are consequences, dire consequences. This is less about undermining the keeping power of God and more about a warning of neglecting so great a gracious salvation if you are in its range. At least that's to me, what makes most sense and how I understand this text. And to be quite frank with you, lost or never had 
the consequences are still unthinkable and dire. I mean, when all of this theological, interesting discussion is all settled and the dust settles, the bottom line is, it matters that you're saved. And if you are saved, Jesus says, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to keep you for good. And I'm going to raise you up in the last day. And I put all of my faith and all of my trust in Jesus' promise to me. And if you're lost, there are dire consequences to that. And that's the importance of the teaching of salvation. And so this opportunity for all of us who are in this great context of Calvary Baptist Church and with this great family of God, the truth is presented. The gospel's available. The evidence of God's work is everywhere among us. So don't reject so great a salvation because there is no other one to go to for repentance than Jesus Christ. And if you reject him, you have no one else to take care of your sins and your eternal, uh, your eternal destiny. Our Father and our God, thank you for, I think, the clarity of your word. And I pray tonight as we have plowed through some, uh, some important areas of Scripture, uh, none really more important than understanding the nature of salvation, our relationship with you, uh, the power of God to keep us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for all of that. We just, we just praise you. We thank you for the security we have in Christ, not to um, abuse, because the genuine don't, but to cherish and to invite you, Lord, to continue to transform us. That we would experience the best of life. The best that we can be is to be completely Christ-like. You've created us in the image of God and saved us to transform us back into the, the, um, the, the, the image of Christ. And that is the place where we are really who we're supposed to be. If we really want to find out who you made us to be, then Lord, I pray that we would cooperate with your life-transforming work. Because one day we'll wake up and look in the mirror and realize, so this is what I was supposed to be like. Oh God, I pray that we might uh, cooperate with that journey. And not ever put our salvation, for that matter, in jeopardy, as if it could be. And so I pray, Father, and thank you for the keeping power of God who enables us to follow through with why you have brought us into your family in the first place. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.